0: All right, so as we begin this morning, I'd like to ask everybody to stand up. Go on. This is participatory. Stand up, and I want you to stretch out your arms. There you go. Good stretch. All right, you can go ahead and be seated. Now, why did I have everybody do that this morning? Well, on one hand, it's, a, it's good to move around a bit before you settle in for a 40-minute sermon. But that's not my main point. The main reason is this. I was watching you all do that and from what I could tell, no one had a lot of trouble doing it. It didn't require a lot of thought. You didn't have to kind of interpret what did I mean by stand up and stretch. I didn't hear anybody audibly tell your body, body, let's get up. Come on. I didn't hear anyone uh, go, you know, body, stretch out your arms. Everyone was able to do it more or less without much thought or effort. No one had to think about how to stand and to stretch. Your brain processed the request. It considered it a reasonable one. That created a desire to move. And then your brain sent the necessary signals via your nervous system. Your muscles began to contract in conjunction with tendons and joints to move your skeletal bones to accomplish the movement. And as you were stretching, you may not know this, but as you were stretching, there were, there's a variety of receptors in your skin and muscles and bones that provide instant feedback to the environment around you to determine the speed and direction and force of your movement. And all of that sensory feedback was transmitted back via the nervous system to your brain so that you could make adjustments to your movements. I noted no one got clobbered in the face. Even though some of you are sitting close to you, I saw a couple of you turn this way. Why? Because you needed the extra space to be able to stretch out. So your brain recognized that there was someone sitting and standing next to you. And so you just effortlessly directed your movements accordingly. And I would imagine this isn't even the most complex movements you've done today or that you will do today. After the gathering today, some of you will go home. You'll prepare meals for the week. You might knock out different tasks on your to-do list. might go for a walk today. Even sitting on a couch watching the Patriots game today is going to require some movement. The human movement is an amazing accomplishment of the body as the members work together for the common good. Now what happens when a member of the body is unable to perform that task. Sometimes a member of your body is injured and the body will compensate to pick up the slack. So for example, say you injure your knee. It's not that you stop moving. It's not that you stop walking. What happens is your body compensates for that. So your lower back and your other leg will pick up some of the slack that the injured knee is unable to do. And that's fine and good for a short amount of time, but over time, this can lead to what are called compensation injuries. So not only do you have the primary injury, but now you have the secondary injury. All things were going well for the other knee until it had to pick up the slack for the body. See, compensation can only last for so long. And all that added strain on the rest of the body leads to other muscles, other joints getting injured simply because they're doing more than they should be. Or sometimes worse injuries happen where a member of your body is permanently damaged. It's no longer able to serve alongside the rest of the body. And it might become paralyzed or worse, it might be amputated. And when that happens, the whole body suffers. It's not that you can't get along, but it's not optimal. It's, it's, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Compensation injuries, paralysis, amputation, none of these are the optimal conditions for the human body. Why? Because the body works best when every single member serves according to its design. The body works best when every member serves their role according to its design. Well this morning we're continuing on our series in Romans 12 and today we're looking at Verses 6, 7, and 8 as Paul is finishing out his analogy of how the body of Christ is like the human body. Where every member serves their role according to its design. And when that happens, the body thrives. And it's the same way with the church. When every member is serving according to God's design, the whole body of Christ thrives. Thrives. And as Paul takes, uh, finishes out this section, he's going to take up this conversation about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. These roles, these ministries that we have, where every member of the body of Christ is given spiritual gifts in order to serve the body. And in verses 6, 7, and 8, we're going to learn three things about these gifts. First, we're going to see the impartation of these gifts. We're going to find out that these gifts are not self-derived, but given. And we are to receive them with humility and gratitude. Because gifts are given, we should receive them with gratitude. Second, we'll see the stewardship of the gifts. So not only are they imparted to us, but they're to be stewarded well. They're not meant to be dormant. They're not meant to be discarded. But these gifts that God's given us are meant to be matured and put to use. And third, we'll see the explanation of the gifts. As Paul gives us a list of seven spiritual gifts, he'll give us some explanation that'll help guide us as we use them. So we'll see the impartation of the gifts, the stewardship of the gifts, and finally the explanation of the gifts. Let's start in verse 3 to get some context for our verses today. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Again, we're in this series in Romans 12. Romans 12-16 through is Paul's explanation about how gospel culture flows from gospel doctrine. The first 11 chapters are about the doctrines of grace, about how God has saved us by the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's it's Paul's systematic theology. And then in chapters 12 through 16, Paul is saying, here's how that impacts the everyday stuff of life. In other words, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right thinking, orthodoxy, leads to right living, orthopraxy. Paul wants to show us, That doctrine is not stuffy. It's not just for the stuff of intellectuals. It's not just merely for um, seminarians. It's not for professional theologians. In fact, theology is for all of us. All of you are actually theologians. Maybe you didn't know that. You all have views and thoughts about God. And maybe they're less formed or less accurate, but you're all theologians. And Paul is telling us that what we believe determines how we live. And so in these chapters, Paul is, is talking about what a life of transformation looks like. If you want to see more transformation in your life, you don't need less doctrine, you need more. You need to grow in your beliefs. You need to see that Gospel doctrine needs to work its way down from the head into our soul and out into our hands so that we are changed from the inside out. Now, in chapter 12 and verses 1 to 2, Paul says, When you consider all that God has done for you in Christ and you really consider it, the only logical response is to give all of you to all of God, to go all in with Christ, all of you given to all of God. And then in verses 3 through 8, Paul starts to unpack. What this going all in could look like. And he's talking uh, in these verses about our relationship with the body of Christ. He's saying that the gospel transforms our relationships inside the church. And he begins and he says, if you're going to rightly love others, you've got to begin with humility. Because the greatest hindrance to us loving one another is our own pride. That's what keeps us from loving one another. That's why Paul says, if the church is going to thrive and love one another, we've got to be humble humble we've got to get the focus off of ourselves and start looking around and then Paul drops a powerful analogy to help us understand this this beautiful unity and diversity and connectivity between the members of the body of Christ and he says listen just like a body has many members they all do different things so is the same with the body of Christ and when every member is serving and and playing this particular role, that's where they find life. That's where they find purpose. As the body is joined together as one. And not only is the the members of the body connected to the body itself, but we're also connected and in relationship with one another. And that sets us up to understand where he goes in verse 6. He says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now I think this point is very straightforward. But if we miss it, we'll completely mishandle our spiritual giftedness. Our spiritual gifts are not self-derived, meaning you do not generate them. You don't look inside yourself, look through the roll decks of gifts and go, what would I like to do? No, it's assigned to you. It's given to you by God. They are imparted, given, not self-manifested, not self-derived. Every Believer is given spiritual gifts by God. Now that's implicit in the word gifts, isn't it? A gift is something given by what? A giver. Someone outside of you. You can't give yourself a gift. I know we like to treat ourselves. But that's not a gift. A gift is given by a giver. In fact, this word translated as gifts is the, is the Greek word charisma, charisma which is a derivative of the word charis, which means grace. The The very notion of the gifts are that they're given by grace. It's a manifestation of gifts. It refers to something that is graciously given to someone. And that's why English translators translated it as gift, because it, it fits that category really, really well. In other words, Paul says God's grace to us in Christ not only saves us, but his grace imparts to us what we need for ministry. It's not just that God has grafted you into the body of Christ. He's gone the extra measure because that's what grace does and given us what we need for ministry so that we can serve one another. Now think about that. In the same way that God equips the members of your body for their role, right? The eyes have everything they need to see. The hands have everything they need to do to to pick up and work. I mean, opposable thumbs. It's amazing, right? God in the same way equips the members of the body of Christ for their role. Listen to Paul explain further in 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are a variety of gifts but the same spirit. Varieties of service but the same Lord. Variety of activities, but it's the same God who, don't miss this, empowers them all in everyone. To each is given Say that word, given, given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Verse 11, all these gifts are empowered by one, by one in the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God is the one giving the gifts. God is the one empowering the gifts. God is the one determining which gifts you receive, which gifts you receive, which gifts you receive. According to what? To your preferences? No, that's not what verse 11 said. As he, God himself, wills. It's at his discretion. Paul said there's a variety of gifts and ministries, but the same spirit, same Lord, same God who empowers them all. And it's God who gives to each person a manifestation of the spirit. And this spiritual giftedness is for the common good. You saw that in verse 11, right? Not for your good, not for your building up, not for your um, self-promotion, but for the good of what? The body. It's for the building up of the body. Think about our sense of sight and the different parts that play their unique role. Each one of them has a unique function and a unique contribution to the process. So here's how it happens. You're, 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 You're looking at me right now. You're seeing things around me. What's happening is light passes through your cornea And because it's shaped like a dome, it bends the light and it helps the eye to focus. Then that bent light enters through an opening called the pupil, right? Then the iris, the colored part of your eye, controls how much light the pupil will let in. And then this light passes through the lens, which works together with the cornea to focus the light correctly on the retina in the back of the eye. And that retina is that light-sensitive layer of tissue in the back of the eye, and there's these special cells back there called photoreceptors that turn the light into electrical signals. And those signals travel from the retina through the optic nerve to the brain, and the brain turns those signals into the images that you see. Each member of the eye has a unique role to play. It's gifted for certain things. The retina does not do what the iris does. The iris does not do what the lens does. They all play their unique, God-given, God-assigned design. And together, the result is sight. You see that? All of this is by God's design, by God's gift. Now you might be asking, what's the difference between a spiritual gift and a talent? On one hand, there's some similarities between the two. Both are gifts from God. Your talents aren't self-derived either, as much as we like to boast about them. So if you're musically gifted or you're handy with tools or you're financially savvy, your ability to remember information, some of you are sponges, right? Your networking ability, whatever it is, every talent, every ability is still a gift from God. Both spiritual gifts and talents can grow in maturity, Right? So if you use them, you can mature them. They become more effective with use. There's nothing worse than seeing special God-given talent just laid to waste and not being used. God intends that we use both our talents and our spiritual gifts for the glory of God and the good of others. But here's the biggest difference. Talents are given to all humanity by God's sovereign will through the means of genetics and surroundings both nature and nurture. Spiritual gifts, however, are given by the Holy Spirit to believers. So non-believers do not have spiritual gifts. It's something given to the members of the body of Christ for the purpose of serving and building up the body. So what happens, and there's some mystery here, but at the moment of your conversion, not only are you awakened and regenerated to the beauty of Christ, adopted into the family of God, and all the beauties and mysteries of salvation, But you're also given spiritual gifts. Now we're going to look at some of these gifts in more detail today. You can read um, more about these. If you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 12 is another place to dial in. 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4. These are all places where Paul talks about and Peter talks about spiritual gifts. But the big point to get right from the get-go is this. Spiritual gifts are just that. They're gifts. They're imparted to us. Given by God's grace. You don't earn them. You don't serve as a Christian for a number of years and then God says, hey, you've graduated up to spiritual gift status. No, no. They're given to you simply by your adoption. You don't deserve them. We can't demand them. You can't go, God, I, I don't like my gifts. I'd like to turn them in and get something else. That's not how it works. We simply receive them with humility and, gratitude. and because they are gracious gifts given by God himself, there should be no envy. We shouldn't be looking around going, I wish I had your gifts. We should be grateful and glad to receive what God has given us because God has given them to you to fulfill a role that only you can fill. Sight doesn't work if everyone wants to be retina. Everyone has to play their role. Heart. There should be no boasting, like look look at the gift I have. That's not what they're for. There should be no comparison, but just a gladsome body, thrilled that God would give us anything. And that God would give us a role to play for the building up and thriving of the body of Christ. God imparts spiritual gifts as he pleases, according to his wisdom that's why we can trust him this is his body his church now from the impartation of the gifts we move to the second point stewardship of these gifts paul says having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them again paul's pretty clear about it he doesn't say let's waste them he says let's use them God has given us gifts to use, therefore, they shouldn't lay dormant. They shouldn't be discarded. They should be used. It reminds me of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. You remember this parable? Jesus is speaking. It said, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents. To another two. To another one. Each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now here a talent, don't get confused. It's not an ability it, it, it's, it's actually a monetary unit in the Hebrew culture. It's worth about 20 uh, years worth of wages for a day laborer. So let me break that down for you. In today's economy, the average day laborer makes about $15 an hour, working 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. That comes to about $30,000 a year. And if you math it out times 20, that's $600,000. So each one of those talents in today's economy would be about $600,000. So the master gives five to one, two to another, and one to another. He who had received the five talents went at once, traded with them. and He made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So... The five and two talent servants, what do they do? They go out, they work, they take their money, they stewardship. They're doing what Paul says, let us use it. They receive their gift, and what do they do? They get to work. The one talent servant is unwilling to take a risk, unwilling to work. And so what does he do? He buries it. He doesn't lose it, but he doesn't use it either. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those two servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And for the sake of time, the two-talent servant does the same exact thing. The five and two talent servants report to their master and they both receive commendation for a job well done. And what's praised is not the amount of money made. The the, the guy with five talents isn't more commended because he made five. They're both commended. Why? They took what was given to them and they put it to work. The faithfulness of their stewardship is what is commended. And they're invited to enter into the joy their master. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master I know you're a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. He's saying if you're going to bury it, you could at least bear it with the bankers. I would have gotten something. Verse 29, for to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, this third servant tries to justify his lack of stewardship by blaming the master. Do you see that? He says, Listen, I didn't do what I was supposed to do because you're kind of a bad guy. He assaults his character and says that his lack of activity was driven by fear of the master. But what does the master do? He rebukes him, he takes what he had given him and gives it to another. And then Jesus summarizes the truth in this passage. First he says this, God entrusts all people with a portion of his resources and expects them to act as good stewards of it. Second, God will commend and reward those who faithfully steward what he has given to them and they will enter into the master's rest. And third he says this, failure to use what God has given to you will be met with rebuke and separation from God. In this passage, that third servant doesn't exhibit love and faithfulness towards the master. He has a skewed view of God, right? That's why theology matters. Therefore, he doesn't trust him with his life and his gifts. Now, how do we apply this passage to what our situation here? It's a passage about stewarding what God has given you, right? Spiritual gifts are gifts God has given to you. Paul says, let us use them. This is a matter of stewardship. Stewardship. God gives gifts according to his discretion to every believer and he expects us to put them to use, not bury them, not discard them, not to have a skewed view of God. You go, well, what if I get out there and I serve with my gifts and I don't do it right? That's assuming God is going to treat you with uh, condemnation and rebuke if you don't serve him perfectly. Let me just pop that bubble, none of us serve God perfectly. None of us. What's commended is that we get out there and use what God has given us. Faithful stewardship. That is what God is looking for. In fact, every single passage about ministry, every single passage about spiritual giftedness is ultimately about one thing. The members of the body of Christ Using what God has given them for the good and the building up of the body of Christ. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians twelve seven. Let me remind you again. To each is given the manifestation, this gift of the spirit for what? The common good. Paul says it again in Ephesians 4. Speaking truth and love, we the body of Christ are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped Equipped with what? These spiritual gifts. God has equipped us with spiritual gifts. So that, here's the end, when each part is working properly with that spiritual gift, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Each has received a gift. Use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards you hear that? Stewardship? Good stewards of God's varied grace in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God has given us spiritual gifts and we're called to use them as good stewards so that the body of Christ may be built up and Jesus be glorified. That's why He's given them to us. Believers are gifted so that we can contribute to the cause of Christ out of gratitude for all that he has done for us. What does that mean for you? It means there should be no bored Christians. A bored Christian is a contradiction of terms. God has gifted you with spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. There should be no passive Christians. There should be no dormant Christians. There should be nobody who comes to church simply to recharge your batteries and to go out of here living life the way you want to. That's not how Christ came. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And do what? Give his life as a ransom for many. And what do you think happens as God's work of sanctification happens, as we're growing into the image of Christ? Into what image are we growing into? The image of a servant, someone who serves, that's our, tra- that's our trajectory. It's the same as Jesus, with an increasing desire not to be served, but to serve. To take what God has given us and put it to good use. In other words, to give, not simply receive. To contribute, not, not simply to consume. So far we've seen the impartation of the gifts, the stewardship of the gifts. And now let's look at our last point, the explanation of the gifts. Paul says, if that gift is prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So here Paul lists out seven spiritual gifts with a short explanation of each one. Now let me give you the list up front if you're taking notes. Here are those seven gifts. Prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. Now the first one on this list is going to need the most explanation. So we're going to spend most of the rest of our time here. And that first gift is prophecy. Now there is no shortage of books written on this. Let me say from the outset that there are plenty of good, Bible believing, faithful Christians who are going to land differently than I do and your pastors do on this. That doesn't make them bad Christians. It just means we land differently. And it's important to land. It's important to study scripture and to come to different conclusions and, and, and to come to conclusions on certain matters. And one last caveat before I get into my explanation. Um, I'm going to try to do in about 10 minutes what people take whole books to do. So I'm going to leave stuff out. I'm not going to be able to go through every single, uh, 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 you know, different viewpoints on this. That's not what this is for. I am going to try to make a biblical argument for what I think is going on here. So what is prophecy? Well, first we got to go back to the Old Testament. God would raise up prophets to serve in a variety of functions. Sometimes prophets would foretell things, meaning God would give them divine insight into the halls of history, into things that would happen. Things that haven't happened yet, but the prophet would say, this is going to happen. And then in due time, guess what? It would happen. They'd be able to foretell the future, not because of their own insight, but because God gave them that insight, right? And in addition to that, sometimes prophets would forth-tell. You got foretelling and then forthtelling, forthtelling, meanings that meaning they would speak with authority to call God's people to repentance. So they would stand there and they would say, here's what the Lord has to say to you. Again, God would give them divine insight into the people of God and would call them to speak boldly, directly into the sins of the people of God and call them to a certain place. And the reason they could come and stand, though they were sinners themselves, is because God was raising them up for that very purpose. And God would, they're speaking with authority, not of their own derived authority, but because God's word had come to them, and God said, go and tell the people this. Speak only what I tell you, but speak everything I tell you. Right? That's a prophet. In other words, they would tell it like it is. God's people were in sin, about to face judgment. He would let them know. They needed to change. The prophet would tell them what they needed to know and where they needed to change. And often their role as prophets was to help the people of God see what was about to happen next as God's plan of redemption unfolded. You see, it takes the whole Bible to get God's plan of redemption. It's not all laid out in chapter 1, right? It's progressively revealed over time. And God would raise up a prophet when another movement or the next portion of God's redemptive plan was going to unfold. And they would play a pivotal role in the unfolding of that plan. So a prophet would hear direct revelations from God. God speaking to them. God's actual words. And they were to be received by those who read them or those who heard them. As God's actual words. It wasn't Isaiah's words. It was God's words through Isaiah. And they were to receive them as, and this is important, true, authoritative, and binding. The prophet's words, because they were words from God, were to be received as true, authoritative, and binding. And that's really important to grasp. True, authoritative, and binding. The prophet heard direct actual words from God and those who heard them were to receive them as true authoritative and binding meaning there were consequences for not following them right now sometimes these prophets words were written down and we have them the book of Isaiah Jeremiah uh, we've got uh, Haggai Obadiah uh, Micah I mean all kinds of prophecies that were written down but sometimes they weren't recorded we have instances in the Bible where we hear that the word of the Lord came to a certain prophet and we're just told that they prophesied to a certain group of people, but they weren't recorded down. And it's God's discretion, what he chooses to write down or not. It doesn't mean that those words weren't God's words. It just means that those words weren't words that God wanted us today to have. And again, it's God's words. He can decide what to do with them. We're also told... In the the Bible, particularly like in Deuteronomy, that we were to judge a prophet's words by how closely they followed other words from God. Meaning, a prophet couldn't start saying, hey, God wants us to do this, when they had clear, direct revelation that, no, no, God told them to do this, right? They couldn't contradict God's words because God doesn't contradict himself. God's not wishy-washy like we are. God doesn't evolve on his positions. Right? Right? So a prophet's words were to be judged against already received words from God. And they were also to be judged if they were saying, look, this is going to come to pass. If it came to pass differently, that was, that was bad for that prophet. Because their words had to come true in the way that they said it. That's how you would, would, would judge the veracity or the truthfulness of a prophet. And if they spoke against God's words or their prophecies didn't come true, they were labeled as a false prophet. And that's really important because false prophets are troublesome. They're dangerous, right? They can lead people astray. If you come claiming to be a prophet, I have words from God, people tend to listen, right? We want to believe, okay, God has spoken. What are we supposed to do? And if you lead God's people astray... It's really, really dangerous, and that prophet is going to be disciplined accordingly. Now, what happens when we get to the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, it's an interesting period because you start to see a movement away from the ministry of the prophets. You start to see that John the Baptist is, is considered the last Old Testament or Old Covenant prophet. And What was his job? His job was to point the way to Jesus because Jesus had actually come and was right there. See, all the other prophets are saying, he's coming, he's coming. John was like, he's here, he's here, right? What did John do when he saw Jesus? He said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it wasn't theoretical for John. He's actually looking at Jesus. He's pointing in the flesh to Christ. And as we move forward in the New Testament, we have some examples of Jesus, Jesus would prophesy about what was coming in the end. We have a few people prophesying in the book of Acts who do things like saying, "Hey, there's going to be a massive famine. Hey, Paul's going to be arrested. You have a foretelling happening in the New Testament." But here's the big point. Nothing really changes in the New Testament as it relates to prophecy. It's still the same ministry. God directly speaking to prophets and giving them revelation. Words that are meant to be authoritative, they're meant to be true, and they're meant to be binding. There's nothing, you don't see a verse in the New Testament that says, hey, FYI, prophecy has changed a little bit. It used to be like this, now it's like this. You don't have anything like that in the Bible. It's still spontaneous, divine Revelation from God himself. And those who receive it, those who hear it, should regard it as true, authoritative, and binding. We even have a whole book in the New Testament about prophecy. The book of Revelation. Now, we're going to link some articles in the weekly sync today. Because I'm trying to condense a whole lot of writing into a, a short amount of time. One of those articles is going to do a survey of every instance of prophecy in the New Testament, and show you how it's it still exactly has the same character, nature as the Old Testament, and that's a really important link because a lot of people would go, "Well, prophecy is like preaching." Okay, prophecy is not preaching. There are actually two different words in the Bible. What I'm doing right now is not prophesying; it's called preaching. I'm explaining an already received Word of God, not spontaneous, direct. Revelation from God. Right? God's not speaking to me right now and I'm going, hold on, ho- hold on. What what'd you say? Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Let me tell you. No, no, I'm taking Romans 12, 6 through 8, having studied it all week, God's already given word and explaining it. And giving us some points of application with it. That's preaching. That's not prophesying. Prophecy isn't exhortation. Again, it's a different word. The, the, we're going to get to the gift of exhortation. They're not the same thing. It's not simply speaking boldly. Like if I speak like a, an Enneagram 8, I'm prophesying. I always speak like an Enneagram 8. You know why? Because I'm an 8. I'm always speaking boldly. That's what I do. But that's not prophecy. Now sometimes, did prophecies prophes- uh, prophets speak boldly? Yeah. Did it sometimes sound preachy? Yes. Were there sometimes exhortations? Yes, but just because it looks like those things doesn't make it like those things. It's an entirely different category altogether. What distinguishes prophecy from preaching and exhortation and speaking boldly is that God's word is spontaneously and directly coming to that person. And that word, because it's from God, is meant to be received as true, authoritative, and binding. Meaning, if a prophet came to you and says, God says this, you didn't get to go, let me pray about that. You got to go, let me get on that. Right? You don't get to, like, think about it and go, well, you know, God said that. Let me take that into consideration. It's meant to be true, binding, and authoritative. That's what prophecy is. The big question is, is that still active today? And I would say no. And here's why. Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. Look closely with me. Paul says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. That's all describing the church. Built, so the church now, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church is built on a foundation. Think about a building. It's got to have a foundation, right? So Jesus is the main piece, the cornerstone, the piece that sets everything else up. And then the foundation of the church is what? Apostles and prophets. You see that, right? Okay. The prophets here are both those Old Testament prophets we talked about and even these New Testament prophets who led the people of God toward the redemptive plan of God, going all the way back to Abraham into the earliest days of the New Testament. In addition to prophets, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. The apostles are those key instrumental disciples who witnessed the resurrection, who wrote the New Testament, and they provided the earliest leadership in the church as the church was being established. The church didn't always exist. Right? It began at the ascension of Christ in this, this building period. And as the foundation uh, of the church is being established, it's being built on all the work the prophets have done. And this new work that the apostles are doing for the establishment of the church. But you know what? You don't keep building on a foundation. A foundation is laid and then a building is set on top of it. That's Paul's point. The foundation has been laid. The work of the apostles to write the New Testament, that's been done. There's no new letters, right? Canon is closed. Meaning that all the direct revelation that we need is recorded in Scripture. And therefore, the need for prophets and apostles has come to an end. It's over. The church has all it needs to be faithful and to fulfill the Great Commission until Jesus returns. In the Old Testament, there was still an awaiting of what's next in God's plan. But we already have that. We know what's next, the return of Christ. New Testament prophets no longer exist today because the doctrinal foundation of the church has been laid once and for all. In fact, no Orthodox Christian, whether they're more charismatic or not, believes that the canon is still open. That God is still directly speaking In a way that is true authoritative and binding. And therefore for all Christians everywhere to believe. No one still believes that. No one still believes that God is still speaking with new authoritative revelation that is equal to and on par with scripture. Because friends let me tell you something. God's word right here is God's actual words. And if God is speaking to a prophet his actual words they are exactly the same as this book. Because they're God's words and therefore they would be true authoritative and binding just like every single word in this book is. But that's not what my more charismatic brothers and sisters believe is the nature of modern uh, day prophecy. What they would say is the nature of modern day prophecy has changed. So they, they would say that the so all the stuff I just said about what prophets do, they go, we agree with that. But what we think modern day prophecy is is different. The nature of it has changed. And that's where I would say... but. But where did you get that it changed? How, how do you know that it's changed? There's no Bible verse that says it's changed. So I would think it hasn't changed. So their definition of New, prophet, New Testament prophecy, you might hear people say uh, that I've got an impression from the Lord. Or I, or I feel a, uh, a, a word from the Lord. And that these impressions help guide and direct us in the everyday stuff of life. And friends, let me hear, hear me when I say this. I absolutely believe God does that. I absolutely believe that God speaks to us and directs us. That's why this is a relationship with God. But those words that you, those impressions aren't true authoritative and binding for the entire church. You see the difference there? And they would also say that because we're fallible, because we can misunderstand and misinterpret That these impressions need to be prayerfully considered, to understand what they mean, and to consider how we might make different decisions in light of them. And hear me, don't miss me. I believe those things happen. I believe the Holy Spirit is alive and active and guides believers today. And yes, I think God gives us impressions to help our other fellow brothers and sisters In Christ. I just don't think it meets the definition that the scripture gives of prophecy. It's a category mistake. Now you might go, well, that's splitting hairs, Clint. Well, it's important that we understand that words have meaning and it's important that we don't confuse them. I think it would be better understood these impressions as a word of knowledge or perhaps even a gift that's not listed in the spiritual gifts. I've actually had something like this happen to me. I'll give you an example. A few years into my pastoral ministry, I was working at a large mega church in Dallas. Thousands of people at this church, and we would have on-call pastors, meaning you, if you, you know, like a like a doctor's on-call, right? They don't have to be at the hospital, but like if something happens, you're on-call, you have to go. And so I was the, the pastor on-call, and there was a couple who wanted to meet with a pastor for financial counseling, and they were um, they were they were a Christian couple. They were dating. They weren't quite engaged yet, but they were heading towards that. And I think they had some, uh, in their background and family history, there was a lot of problems with finances. And so they just wanted to sit with a pastor and go, how do you do finances as a couple in a church? Because we know that one of the common uh, reasons couples get divorced is over money. And so as we're thinking about marriage, we just want to go into that season of life with with some good biblical foundations of of how you do finances in church which is a great thing to talk to your pastors about. Again, I'd never met them before, but I was the pastor on call. And so they, they showed up. Uh, someone said, hey, uh, l- l- you're going to meet with Pastor Clinton. He'll take you back to his office and you guys will sit down and, and, and talk about that. And as soon as I shook the man's hand, I felt a, call it an impression, call it a stirring. I just felt something from the Holy Spirit to ask them about the purity in their relationship. Again, never met them before, couldn't have picked them out of a lineup. But it was clear to me that the Spirit wanted me to confront them about the nature of the purity of their relationship, call them to repentance, and pray with them. I mean, it, it, and nothing like this has ever happened to me before, but it was as clear as I've ever felt a stirring from the Lord. Now, remember me. We're like walking back, and I'm thinking, they want to talk about money and I'm about to talk to them about their bedroom. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's like a weird like shift, right? It's not what they were expecting. But I also knew I'm supposed to ask them about this. And if I don't, I would not be obedient to this prompting from the Lord. So as we sat down, I said, hey, this might seem like it's coming out of left field. Or whatever's even like further out than left field. I know you don't know me and I don't know you. But before we talk about finances... I have to ask you a question. And I told them that I, when I met you, I felt stirred by the spirit to ask you this. And I said, listen, I could be way off. I could be wrong. But I need to ask you, are you two sleeping together? Their faces dropped. They started to weep. And they began to confess and repent. Now they told me that they had been struggling and that they were relieved to have their sin called out. It was like someone had turned, like they were just unwilling or unable to turn the on, the lights on in the room, you know? But this, it was the, it, what the courage they lacked, the Spirit gave me in that moment to help lead them towards repentance. They needed their sin to be brought to light, to call it a sin, and they needed someone to help walk them towards holiness. Now, needless to say, we didn't talk about finances that morning, and I have no doubt in my mind that the Spirit prompted me to ask them about that. I have no doubt that obedience for me that morning was taking a step of faith to follow the Spirit's prompting. Now, was what I experienced that morning prophecy? The answer, no. It's not prophecy. It doesn't meet the biblical definition and standards of prophecy. Was it a God-given direction A spirit-led impression that led to exhortation, repentance, and renewed faithfulness for that couple? Yes. And God does that in many various ways today. Apparently at the writing of the New Testament in that earliest part, prophecy was still something that was active in laying the foundation of the church. But now that the foundation of the church has been laid, the need for prophecy as defined in Scripture, as illustrated in Scripture... Has ceased. And I believe that the operation of the Spirit is alive and active. We would not be able to do anything that we're doing as a church without the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is not a back, you know, a sidelined member of the Trinity. He's not benched. He is alive and he is active and he's among us. Right? But it's important that we don't um, manipulate. Or confuse words of scripture. Now there's certainly more that could be said on this matter. But because we have a closed canon. An established foundation. And a coming savior. There just simply is no need for prophecy. And I think that's why we've seen it cease in this time period. Again, we're going to link some articles in the weekly sync. And as always, your pastors are happy to sit with you. And we can talk about these matters further. All right quickly second gift serving serving is giving practical need to those a practical help to those in need sometimes it's even translated in your bible as the, as ministering the person with the spiritual gift of serving looks to meet felt needs this is not you don't have to convince them to go so th- this person who has the gift of serving is just always looking for needs and how they can meet them A person with this gift, when they see someone in need, don't just go, oh, man, look at them. They're in need. Huh. I wonder who's going to do that. A person with the gift of serving sees a need and moves to action. Number three, teaching. Teaching is making clear the truth of God's word with simplicity and accuracy. The person with the gift of teaching has a God-given ability to read, understand, and apply God's word and... To communicate that to others. Number four, exhortation. Exhortation is someone who's got a God-given ability to motivate others towards action, towards application, towards purpose. This person has a God-given ability to apply God's word into the everyday stuff of life. They're able to take the theoretical and to make it in, like just so on-the-ground, concrete, concrete. And, and practical for your life. And Paul wants us to put these gifts into action. Number five, giving. The spiritual gift of giving is someone who gladly releases the materials that God has given them to further the work of the church. You don't have to pry their hand open to give a dollar to the church. A person with the spiritual gift of giving is just generous. It's In fact, when they give... It delights them. They're not thinking about what could I have spent that money on. They're going, I am so excited to invest in the kingdom of God. That's the gift of giving. Leadership. The spiritual gift of leadership is someone who has a God-given ability to organize God's people around a clear vision and purpose. Paul tells us the person with the gift of leadership is to do so with diligence and zeal. It, the word literally means a guide. Like, and it's thinking about, it's picturing like the rudder on a ship. It's what steers the ship. That's what a leader does. Someone who has the spiritual gift of leadership leads with humility and wisdom and grace. And number seven, mercy. The spiritual gift of mercy. These people with this gift are compassionate towards others who are in distress. A lot of times when we meet people in distress, it stresses us out, right? Right? But a person with the gift of of mercy is able to lean into that stress, feel it but not totally absorb it to to this place of incapacity, but is able to to enter in. They're sympathetic and sensitive to the needs of others, particularly those in great need and those who are difficult to love. They're able to enter into hardship and to provide relief from suffering. That's the gift of mercy. Of mercy again. There's so much more that could be said about um, spiritual gifts. I really encourage you to check out the weekly sync, um, in particularly this week. Seven Mile Road. We are the body of Christ. We're joined together by the blood of Christ. We're connected together, and God has graciously gifted uh, every single believer with spiritual gifts. And God calls us to cultivate them, to use them, and to steward them well. Wherever the Lord has gifted you, however He's gifted you. Let's serve the body of Christ. Let's serve our neighbors to the glory of God. Let's pray.